So yesterday I um I had an interaction with a chair which um is going to form the the crux of of uh, of the talk tonight. Ooh. <laughs> Someone didn't like that. Um so um, it was at the end of uh, of the group, and uh, you know people had gone off, and, and I was putting the the chairs that uh, were on the balcony back into the room, and uh, and two of the chairs are folding chairs. You fold them, and then you put them away. And as I was, um, you know. It's actually two chairs I had an interaction with, but <laughs> concentrate on one. I just realized there were two. So as I was um, beginning to, to, to fold uh, the first chair, I was quite aware of, of what was going on for me internally. And I'd been kind of aware in the back burner through this whole time in, in Dharmalaya that I had a difficult relationship with these folding chairs. <laughs> We, we kind of unfold them and fold them um, every mealtime in, in Mark and Maylin's room. And um, as I was doing it yesterday, I, I could really see what was going on. I, I really struggle with, with folding these chairs. And um, what I could see was that... I'll just break it down. I could see in my mind there was a self-view a view of myself as uh, being clumsy and um, not very practical. Yeah, So there's a view of myself of being clumsy and not very practical or even kind of limited in my practical skills. And, and so then there's this view and with this view comes a, a nervousness and an agitation. Yeah, So really kind of watching that yesterday, feeling the... Um, kind of sense of um, agitation in the body, nervousness, um, a sense of anxiety in the mind. And so both of these, even though, you know, it's a very simple thing, yeah? No one was around, you know, except me and the chairs. (laughs) And yet such a degree of, of, of dis-ease and to such a degree that it really, I could see the effect, yeah? The mind kind of almost freezes, and even though I've done this before, is unable to, to kind of figure out if I need to push or to pull, you know, or to push this way or that way. Uh, the body also is, is, is tense, and there really is a limited movement in it. And, you know, this real idea then comes up in the mind... I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm going to fail. And all of this is going on. Yeah, all of this is going on together. All of this is going on at the same time. All these different elements are happening. And it is a struggle to fold the chair. You know, it's a struggle. It's not it's not simple. And as I've said, you know, I've been he- we've been here for a while, for a few days, so I've had this experience a few times. And I actually have a fear 
of these chairs. <laughs> you know, Mark and Nathan might be realizing now why kind of I often I just get up and walk away and leave them to fold the chairs. You know, they, they kind of might be realizing why this is going on. You know, externally you probably can't see, you know, I'm scared of these chairs. <laughs> so I, I hope that it's already kind of clear why this is interesting. It's not just some kind of like expose, you know. Think this person sitting here, you know, has got it all figured out? Think again. It's not just about that. It's actually um, a really good example, really good um, kind of unraveling of, of two quite um, interesting and key points. One is how the self-identity builds up, how the self-identity builds up around something. That's one really interesting thing that um, hopefully I'll be able to show you through this example this evening. Um, and the other, which is connected, is um, the dependent arising nature of perception and phenomena, including this phenomena. So the dependently arising nature of perception and of phenomena, including the phenomena we call myself. So two um, really interesting kind of things to look at, and I'm going to say more. <laughs> I'm going to say more. So I am, I am, and please forgive me, I will stay with this chair dynamic, and it's going to last a while. So, you know, hopefully you'll find something interesting in that example. So if we look back at this dynamic, this relationship, we can say, with the chair. So we can ask, okay, when did it start? You know, because we like to define things. You know, something is like this, there's a difficult relationship. What's, what's the root? When did it start? So we could say, you know, the first time here in Dharmalaya when I encountered the chair... <laughs> Maybe it was then the first time when I tried to fold it and found that that was difficult, found that that wasn't smooth, it wasn't flowing, wasn't easeful for me. So, you know, that initial experience then led me to feel less confident around the chair, um, which then led me to struggle in the actual act of folding it, uh, which then confirmed the self-view of myself as you know, not that capable, and of the chair as difficult to fold. Yeah, so the self-view and, and the view of the other. And this, every time, repeats and kind of strengthens that momentum, yeah? That becomes, you know, it's like, like a habit energy or a tendency. Yeah, every time. So we can see very clearly, I hope, in, in this very small, simple example, how that sense of self that we have as something, you know, as able, as not able, you know, as chair-friendly or not chair-friendly, you know, whatever that is, whatever that self-sense, that self-view we, we have, it gets built up through experience. It gets built up through experience. And through you know, experience what actually happens, but also through our perceptions, how we perceive what is happening, through our cheetah states, states of the mind and the heart, um, and through our ways of looking. Yeah. 
And it's like one layer after the other. And that real sense of, I am like this. You know, this is who I am. I am like this. So, you know, we could say this kind of relationship with with the chair, this experience of the chair, this build-up of the self around the chair, started from the first encounter at Dharmalaya. We could say that. It's one thing we could say. And, And we can see clearly how it builds up. But we could also expand the perspective more and ask, well, did it really? Was that really that first time? You know, was that really just, did it come from nothing? Was there something out of nothing in that moment? That first experience, that first time trying to fold the chair. Was it something out of nothing? Or was there something already there? And what was that? So it's a question. I'll give my response. When I kind of reflect on this, you know, looking at, okay, already in that first encounter, there were other conditions, there were conditions present. Yeah, again, it wasn't something out of nothing. Already conditions present, like a fertile ground into which then seeds are are, are sown and, and grow. So there was past experience, for example. That's one condition that was already there. You know, past, expe- past experience of, you know, having other situations in life where I've experienced struggle with things like chairs. You know, that, that's, that past experience is already there. The um, habitual self-views were already there. So the self-views that I habitually kind of more, I have more of a tendency to, to fall into, they were already there also. You know, so maybe a critical self-view or a, an evaluating self-view or a self-view of myself, as I said at the beginning, as of, as of myself as someone who's a bit clumsy <laughs> and not very practically minded or bodied. You know, so, so the self-views were already there. The cheetah state that was present was there. That was a condition. You know, what was the cheetah state? Was it relaxed or was it restless and anxious? You know, in that first interaction. And then in every interaction, all of these things that I'm saying, in every interaction since, they, they all play a part. So what was the cheetah, cheetah state? What else was I actually doing? <laughs> at the time in thinking or involved in? You know, was I just really present with the chair as I was after the group yesterday? Or were there other things that I was kind of engaged with at the same time? So all of these, you know, these are just examples. You know, many, many more things, many, many more conditions that are there, that are playing a part in an event like this. These are just a few, but all of that is at play. All of that is at play. And so maybe we can get a sense that actually, you know, it's not something out of nothing and it's not a starting point, yeah? But that there's a continuum, continuum of conditions and causes and self-views and cheetah states 
and habitual patterns that, that, that play a part. And, you know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, Nathan probably gave the funniest um, teaching on the five aggregates in the history of Dharma talks yesterday. But, um, you know, as he was speaking about these, these heaps that are made up of heaps and that make up heaps, you know, so this is actually, you know, another, like this is what we're talking about, that everything, you know, is, is made up of stuff, you know, of heaps and piles and conditions and causes and mind states and self-use. So what seems like a starting point or what we think of as a starting point is actually part of this continuum. Continuum of causes and conditions that actually, you know, kind of stretches out and expands out. It's like a net, <laughs> very spacious net, <laughs> not, not like a trap, but it's like a net of conditions and a net of causes, a net of perceptions, a net of mind states, of self-use that are at play, that are at play. So, you know, this is, um, is, yeah, lately when I speak about this every time, I feel, I feel myself get really deeply touched by this, by this really core teaching. This is a core teaching of, of, of Dharma. And it's so beautiful, so, so beautiful, that our view of the self, a view of the self, a view of phenomena, as inherently existing, as something that has a beginning and an end, a starting point and an end point, as something that exists, you know, comes into existence out of nothing, something out of nothing. Yeah, and then exists, the, the word that's usually used, inherently exists, something that inherently exists, meaning, you know, exists separately from everything else. This view is not true. <laughs> yeah? This view is not true. It's, it's a view that is a habit, a very strong habit and conditioning. But it is not true. So, that's one part. <laughs> and it doesn't, kind of this... And I hope you can feel it, how this kind of opens up the field, opens up the field of our existence. This goes even further. It goes even further. It doesn't end here. So not only is our sense of self, not only is our sense of self conditioned, yeah, conditioned by you know, many factors some I've, I've mentioned, you know, past experience, culture, gender, genetics, you know, just so many, like very obvious again, when we, when we start to think about it, very obvious. Not only is it conditioned by all these factors, it's also dependent on the mind, dependent on our own mind dependent on the mind and how the mind perceives. 
And this is, um, yeah, incredibly beautiful. Not always easy to grasp. So we'll go slow and just be patient and just see what, what comes in. Don't, don't struggle. If it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make sense. And you're just listening, hearing, feeling, and seeing if it meets you. And if it doesn't, it's always possible to put it aside and contemplate it at another time. So again, if we go back to the example of the chair, which hopefully will continue to serve us as well as it has so far, we go back to that example. That view, well, there are two views at least that I described. One was um, that I'm clumsy and not very practically able. The other was that kind of even stronger, tighter view that comes up of, I can't do this. Yeah, I can't do this. So there's the view. That view colors the perception. Yeah, it colors the perception. And is of course believed, you know, there's a, a, a really strong belief, belief in, the, in the view that I can't do this. And so it colors the perception and it actually affects the experience. You know, I, I'll remind you of, of how I was describing the experience. You know, the mind kind of freezes, the body gets tight and rigid. You know, all of these are cycles that strengthen themselves again and again. And it is actually difficult to know what to do mentally. Do I push up or down? And to then put that into practice, both. Yeah? So that the view in the mind, the view in the mind, I can't do this, directly impacts on the experience, the perception and the experience. And it, it, it actually gets quite funny <laughs> because this becomes such an important thing, you know, because the, the view is so strong that I can't do this and the sense of struggle with the chair that if I, I succeed and I fold the chair with relative ease, which happened at least with one of them yesterday, then there's this sense of um, achievement, you know, and I could really feel myself do what I'm doing now, that kind of puff up, you know. <laughs> I did it, you know, sense of achievement, which is another, it's another, it's another sense of self, but we'll leave it, we'll maybe leave it lightly for now, but that sense, whereas, you know, 99.9% of, of people on this earth would have just folded the chair and there would have been no residue at all from that event, you know, it's like, you know, picking something up, <laughs> it would have just been very normal, so, you know, all of this, like we see how the view, how the mind and the view that the mind holds in that situation or the views, they shape experience, shape perception, shape experience. And they also shape a view, not only of myself, yeah, which I think we've kind of pretty much covered, but we can keep repeating it. <laughs> shaping the view of myself, but also shaping a view of a very neutral object called the chair. And the view is, 
you know, this chair is difficult to fold, even though I've seen Mark and Nathan do it like, like, you know, in seconds, you know, but no, this chair is tricky. It shapes the view of the object. Does that, does this make sense to people? So, in Dharma terms, if we use Dharma terms for, for this whole process, um, the term is fabrication. Fabrication. The mind is fabricating experience. Yeah, right down to that, is this a chair that's easy or difficult to fold? And, you know, if you asked me, you'd get one answer. If you asked Mark, you'd get a different one. Probably, I have no idea. <laughs> because didn't even notice, yeah? So, you know, it's, it's, in, it's not in the object. It's not an inherent quality of the object, easy or difficult to fold. It's in the relationship. It's in the relationship, and it's the mind that is affecting the perception. And, you know, yesterday Nathan also gave um, an example of this dependency on the mind, rising dependent on the mind. Uh, he was talking about the shoulder pain and what happens when, you know, my mind is off somewhere else. Is that pain there or not? You know, it's a question. Is the pain there or not? If I'm not aware of it. Or through the practice um, over the last days, you know, you may have also experienced similar things, either in the Vedana practice or the impermanence or the dukkha. How... um, Experience, experience changes as we change the way of looking at it. As we change the way of looking at it. So, you know, all of these are pointing to the process of fabrication, the dependency and the dependency on, on the mind. And this is really, really, really important, really key. And in my view, at least, really beautiful. <laughs> really, really beautiful. So another way of, of saying this, you know, what, or what fabrication really shows us, fabrication really shows us, is, um, is emptiness. Emptiness, that things are empty. And I hope that at least some of you are asking, empty of what? <laughs> you know, what do we mean when we say empty? What does that mean? Empty of what? So things are empty of inherent existence. Things, including all phenomena, including myself, including others, are empty of inherent existence, are empty of um, existing, free of relationship to other phenomena, free of relationship to other phenomena. So, um, you know, an example that I find really useful to reflect on with this is, you know, when we think of, you know, this is my body. Yeah, this is this body, this is my body. And it is I that inhabit this body. And yet actually when we um, look more closely or listen to um, scientists who understand what is actually going on, 
in, in this body. This body is actually a symbiosis. It's full of um, different forms of life, different life forms. Yeah, there's bacteria, there's viruses, there's maybe fungus, but actually there is. And all, all of these live together. Yeah, all of these live together. So, you know, is this my body or um, is this the body of the bacteria that digest, par partially digest the food that goes in? You know, it's this question. Or is it our body? <laughs> you know, so, so even something as seemingly simple and obvious as that, you know, this body, you know, I, I look after it, I feed it. Try doing that without those bacteria. <laughs> you know, it would be difficult. You know, all the things that we think we do. So it's just like kind of like, again, just thinking about that as a way of just blowing the mind. Blowing the mind. Beyond what we, um, you know, beyond the assumptions that we make. So if we can bring that same kind of um, sense of, you know, we, we understand that when we think about it in this way, that the body is made up of not just this, this organism, but different ones. We can understand, we can relate to that. And similarly, our experience as, as human beings is also made up of different elements. It's conditioned. And again, I'm going to keep saying it, dependent on the mind. Dependent on the mind. So this is really important. It's even got a line under it in my notes. <laughs> this doesn't mean that experience is, um, is an illusion, or that it's not real, or that it's not um, true in some way. And it also doesn't mean that we are in control of it. So the fact that we're saying phenomena is dependent on the mind does not imply that we are in control of what the mind does. It does not imply that. And we already know that we're not in control of our minds, hopefully, by this point. <laughs> of spending a lot of time with the mind. We already know that we're not in control of the mind. What this does mean, or what this does open for us, is the possibility to have intentional involvement in this process. So if things are dependent on the mind, I can bring in intentional involvement into that process. It opens up the possibility of deeper understanding, of less reactivity, of less contraction, of more lightness, of less dukkha, and more freedom. You know, this, it really is that avenue that opens up these possibilities for us, this avenue of, of emptiness.
So the, the Thai forest master, um, Ajahn Sumedho, well, he comes from the Thai tradition, he's not actually Thai, just to keep things precise. Um, he says, um, we need to make a shift through our practice. We need to make a shift from seeing things as me and my, he says, my problems, but we can kind of put anything else in there, my views, my issues, uh, my preferences, whatever we want. So a shift from me and my problems to the Buddha seeing Dharma. And I'll explain. I love this. So a shift from me seeing my problems to the Buddha seeing the Dharma or the wise mind seeing what is arising. Yeah, so Buddha, wise mind, awakened mind, seeing the Dharma, what is arising, what is showing itself. What does that mean? This is another very liberating way of looking. Whenever we kind of find ourselves in that situation of me and my problem, me and my anger, me and my desire, me and my um, aversion, whatever it is, can I shift the way of looking and see the wise mind seeing what is arising? the clear mind seeing what is arising. How can that shift our experience? And it's, it's easy to see this. I want, I'm going to carry on with examples, but I want to really say it's easy to see this with a problematic, so I'm going to use um, examples that kind of focus on the problematic, but it's true of, of anything in our experience, of any phenomena. So, kind of already obvious, but I'll still dwell on it a little bit. When we apply this way of looking, uh, we notice that the habit is to assume a real solid me, a real solid me, which is the other side of the spectrum from an empty um, sense of me. So a real and solid me who is the owner of a real solid problem. Yeah, you get the feel? (laughs) A real solid me, and I own, this is mine, this real solid problem, or attribute, or quality, whatever it is. And when we bring interest and consciously question this identification that's going on there, we see that the problem isn't there all of the time. We've been, I know we've gone over this ground, but it's still very useful. We see that the problem is not there all of the time. And what the mind, back to the mind, what the mind is doing is connecting the dots. It's taking the moments when the problem is there and creating a continuum and ignoring the moments when the problem isn't there. So it's creating this um, continuum and we don't see the gaps between the dots. We don't see the times when the problem isn't there because we don't usually look that carefully and that attentively. You know, we're dealing with a lot of different stimulus and we don't pay that kind of attention. Just uh, 
Hmm, that's interesting. You can see now why I write my notes so big. <laughs> so this is from another Thai, master, um, Thai forest Thai tradition master, Ajahn Amaro. And he, he speaks about this connect the dots phenomena. He says, this is like what the brain does with perception, or this is actually what the brain does with perception. Neuroscientists are realizing that a lot of what we think we experience is in fact just the brain patching in an impression from memory and imagination. So the brain is filling in the gaps. The brain is patching things together from memory and imagination. And he gives an example of this from, from the neuroscientists. So what they found is that when you see when you're watching a football game, he lives in England. <laughs> when you're watching a football game and you see the players kicking the ball, yeah, from one to the other. This is English football, they're kicking the ball. You see the players kicking the ball from one to the other. And you think you actually see the ball going from one set of feet to the other. Yeah, soccer in America. Just a, yeah. So you, what we think we're perceiving when we're watching a football game, if we ever do that, is we think we, can, we actually are seeing the ball going from one pair of feet to the other. But the reality is we do not. We don't actually see that. The visual cortex, the part in the, in the brain which deals with visual stimulus, actually only registers a blur. Yeah? It just registers a blur. The movement of the ball is a blur. It doesn't actually see. It can't register the ball. It's too fast. But because you've seen a still football before, your brain says... I can see the ball going from one pair of feet to the other. And we, that's our experience. That is what we've seen. That is what we've seen. But that is not what is registering in the brain on the, on the kind of uh, level of the um, sensory input. It's not what's registering in the brain. The memory patches that image in and creates that image of actually you know, seeing the ball move from one pair of feet to the other. And that is what we think we see. And that is life, says Ajahn Amara. That is life. A lot of patchwork, guesswork, and supposition, memory and imagination that are woven together. So we may have a feeling, I'm always afraid, or that's always there, or this is who I am. We may have a feeling, but that continuity is deceptive. When we bring up the quality that we're cultivating in meditation practice of looking closely, yeah, looking really closely at experience, we begin to see that the feeling of my problem is just an impression that is arising and ceasing. So that's pretty mind-blowing, huh? <laughs> so 
a little bit more on how, how we work with this, more ways of working with this, more ways of kind of bringing that more into, which is, which is really what we're doing with, with these ways of looking inside practices, is to really make this not just something that blows our mind, but slowly over time with momentum of practice actually becomes part of how we relate to our experience. So a free way of relating to experience. That's beyond the, the habitual conditioning. So we'll take the example of, of, um, of working with a problem, um, say fear, just because that's quite a, a strong um, sense, sensation that we have, a strong experience that we have. And if fear is arising, we can ask... What is actually present? Yes, if fear is arising in the mind, what is actually present? And we start looking. We start looking in detail. Here is the feeling of fear. It feels like this in the body. Yeah, these are the physical sensations, the body sensations that come with fear. It has these qualities. So that's one thing, one step that we do. We look at that. Another step that we can do is we notice that the fear is aimed at an object most of the time. You know, it's not just fear, but it's fear of something, you know, fear of being late. Yeah, fear of missing the bus. You know, fear of something, a mouse, you know, whatever. It's, it has an object, it's aimed at an object. So the practice that um, we can do, a practice that we can do, is to shift the attention from the object to the felt experience of the fear, primarily in the body. So we really just shift, you know, the, the attention is pulled out into the object that we're fearing in this case, but we're shifting the attention to what is happening in the body. And you can say, you know, the, the example I gave with the chair, it was naturally arising, but then definitely encouraged, shifting the attention from the struggle with the chair to what is actually happening in the mind and the body. So we do that with fear. From the object to what is going on in the felt experience, primarily in the body. And then, we notice the experience in the body, and then we relax as much as we can. We relax the tension, we relax the contraction that are in the body. And this was one of the dukkha ways of looking uh, practices today. I know there were quite a lot that were offered this morning, but this is one, is we notice the tension and the contraction and we relax that as much as we can. So if you try this, and you try this over time, yeah, it's like a building up a momentum. If you try this over time, you might notice that once you relax the body, so we shifted the attention from the object to the felt experience of the fear, in this case, in the body, and then we relax the body. And once the body is relaxed, if we bring up again intentionally the object of the fear, if we bring up again intentionally the object of the fear mentally, there can be, 
at least a moment and sometimes longer before the fear comes back. Before the fear comes back. This is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I can give a specific example of this. You know, I'm, I'm often kind of get quite anxious about missing trains or whatever. So I'll be in a, in a taxi or the bus and really aware of the time. And, you know, so if I shift the attention from the object of getting there on time, what's the time right now, to the felt experience in the body, and I relax, 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 relax. And when the body feels relaxed, I intentionally bring up into the mind, am I going to miss the train? <laughs> There can be a moment or a lot longer before the fear kicks in again. So the fear cannot take hold without the tension in the body. It's really interesting. If the body is relaxed, the body is relaxed, the fear cannot take hold. They arise together. They are interconnected, mutually dependent. The, ex the experience of fear and the tension and contraction in the body, mutually dependent. They, they depend on each other. I was reading today that um, one of the theories of why um, Valium works is that it's actually a muscle relaxing drug yeah so it actually it's it, it actually it's not it doesn't directly work on the mind it relaxes the muscles in the body and if the body is relaxed the anxiety <laughs> cannot take hold it's really uh you know this is this is what we're talking about you know mutually dependent empty empty of inherent existence Things inter are, they depend on each other. The body conditions the mind, the mind conditions the body. Mutually dependent. We can do similar explorations with um, the attitude of metta also. You know, so here I, you know, I was describing a technique of working with this sense of I and the problem, and my problem, through shifting the, the awareness to the body sensations and relaxing the body. Similarly, by cultivating an attitude of metta towards experience, which is uh, essentially an attitude of openness, of welcoming, of expansiveness, a similar thing can happen. A practice we haven't done yet, but I've been doing myself, I've been doing a lot in the hall over these days, is um, a practice called metta to sensations. So, you know, by now you're familiar with the practice of sending metta to beings, but it's also possible to send metta to sensations in your own body. And when we do that, or, you know, my experience when I do that, I know other people also. There can be pain in the body, sending metta to that area of pain. The pain 
may continue to be there. But the reactivity to the pain does not arise. Reactivity to the pain does not arise. And therefore, the pain is experienced, even though the sensation, you know, watching the sensation quite closely is not different, not the sensation that has changed, but the level of pain has changed because there's no reactivity, there's no extra tension adding on to that. So that reactivity does not arise, it doesn't take hold. Sometimes, with doing this metta to sensations, the sensations will disappear also. This also happens. There's so little reactivity that the sensations themselves disappear. But in any case, they stop being problematic. They stop being problematic. It's not a problem. That pain in the back or the knee or the hip, it's not a problem. And this also can happen with, with the insight ways of looking. Maybe you've already had that experience, either with the dukkha practice that we did today or in permanence yesterday. can also bring that same result. So, phenomena is empty. Self is empty. Problem is empty. They all arise dependent on the mind. They all arise dependent on the mind. And the mind too is empty and not a problem from its own side. Really important we can, in this kind of um, teaching, we can end up feeling like the mind is the villain. The mind too is empty. It is also conditioned. It also does not exist from its own side. Also phenomena of rising and passing. And so I'd like to end with... um, Another brief piece from Ajahn Amaro, when he's describing working with some of these practices um, that I've been describing, particularly um, the kind of letting go of that owning the problem kind of relationship. And he says, this practice for me took a long period of application and focus, but it worked. And I would suggest it is the same for everybody. You need to be willing, and sometimes you need to be desperate, but it does work. Challenge the presumption that this is something that I have, and that I need to get rid of. Challenge the presumption that I am this person, whatever that is. Challenge those mindsets, because if you don't, You're reifying, making real, the sense of an individual me. Reifying that there is a real problem and that there is a me who can be the permanent owner of it. Bring the quality of investigation to bear and use insight meditation to look at it. Then wisdom itself breaks up those presumptions and you see the reality of mind states. But you can't just snap your fingers and make them go away in the space of one sitting. You need to be willing. So let's have a quiet minute together to bring this to a close.
So before we end, I'd just like to say something more about the chair. In these kind of experiences that we have, small or big, where we see the workings of the mind, and we see emptiness, it doesn't always mean that in that moment we're completely free of the habits and the conditions. What it does mean that in that moment when we see the pattern, we see the conditioning, we see the different elements at play, we are not feeding them. We are not creating more momentum of ignorance, of self-view. And that is really, really valuable and really, really important. So just really wanting to emphasize that as a kind of way of kind of setting the bar. Every moment when we see clearly the workings of our mind, when we see clearly the interrelated nature of things, is a moment where we're not feeding the cycles of suffering. We're not feeding the cycles of identification. And we're working, we're we're actually making real movement towards freedom. So, may our practice continue to nourish a deep presence with our experience, a seeing of the emptiness of all phenomena, and a growing commitment to practice for our own freedom and happiness and for the freedom and happiness of all beings. So thank you for your listening in your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.